Amen. I saw this. Said the baby boomer to the millennial. There should be a millennial edition of Monopoly where you just walk around the board paying rent, never able to buy anything. (laughs) Said the millennial to the baby boomer, if I had a dollar for every time a baby boomer complained about my generation, I'd have enough money to buy a house in the market you ruined. (laughs) Said the baby boomer to the millennial, Millennials are so entitled. I, well, I don't see 20-somethings screaming for the manager because their coupon expired a month ago. Actually, I got that wrong. That was the millennial to the baby boomer. (laughs) And then he said again, baby boomers are making $170,000 a year, and they don't know how to rotate PDFs. (laughs) little back and forth there, but I share that with you in the opening of tonight's study because it does seem, doesn't it, that every generation that comes to uh, ends up blaming the successive generation for being what they are because of problems that they caused. And then, of course, and it goes vice versa. And there's always this kind of generational battle that ensues from period to period as we move through humanity. But as we come to Genesis chapter 4, what we come to is really the second generation that ever existed. The first generation was just simply Adam and Eve, and they really did screw things up for the generation that was coming after them, the fall. And Cain and Abel and all those that came along after them inherited the mess that was made by that first generation, our first parents, Adam and Eve. But they weren't innocent either in the things that they did, and they made just as much of a mess for the generation that came after them, and so on and so forth it goes, even now into the present day. But as we come to chapter 4, we see what happened to the descendants, the offspring of Adam and Eve. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Adam knew Eve, his wife, a King James biblical thing for that they uh, were procreating, And she conceived and she bare Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. And she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, one thing that we passed over in in chapter 3 was when Adam gave Eve her name. He says, it says that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And Eve essentially means uh, mother. And so the name that Adam gave to Eve was not just something that uh, was catchy or that he liked or that was beautiful or that he thought fit with her appearance, but it meant something in terms of who she was, her destiny, and who she was to be in the Lord. And the reason why it's important that we kind of notice that, at least here in in Genesis, is because in the Bible, names mean a lot more than they do kind of in in what we have made them to be in our day and age. You know, we sometimes name someone something that we like the name, the way it sounds, or we like the definition of the name, or maybe it is a name after somebody that means something to us. And, you know, we have meaning and reason behind it. 
But in Bible times, and especially in Bible text, names are a reflection of the person. They, are, they speak something into their life. It, it's a prophecy. It's uh, a meaning or a destiny. It's a prayer. It's something that uh, they will become and ultimately that they will fulfill. And that's kind of the way of God all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And in his wisdom, not only has he done that uh, to, to give the name to be a reflection of the character, but it's also a way in which God can teach using very few words. Because we can look at the name of someone that's given or ascribed in the Bible, and it paints a whole picture, a whole world of pictures before us as to the person that we're dealing with without having to develop each of those things. And so it's an important principle that we understand that from the beginning, this was so with God, that the name of a person communicates to us something of their life, and it helps us to understand them And it helps us to understand the context and the narrative of their story and of their situation. And now that brings us into chapter 4, where Adam and Eve now have their first two children. And we're told that the first of those two was this man-child whom they called Cain. And the name Cain simply means acquisition. And, And then Eve says why she gave him that name. She says, for I have acquired or I have gotten a man from the Lord. And so because she acquired a man from the Lord, she named him acquired. Now, in the Hebrew language, the phrase is a little bit mixed up in its translation because we read it and it says that I have gotten a man from the Lord, that God has given me a man. But in the Hebrew language, what she is expressing is not that she has gotten a man from the Lord, but the phrase is actually, I have gotten a man even the Lord. In other words, what Eve is declaring and hoping that Cain will become, by the way, she's really wrong, (laughs) is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to them in Genesis 3.15, when God said that the seed of the woman will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. And what this tells us is that Adam and Eve understood full well what God was promising when he said that to them there. That there would one day come a deliverer into the human race that would crush the work of the serpent and undo the curse that they were now experiencing and feeling. And Eve really believed when Cain was born to her, that this was the fulfillment of God's promise, that he was the deliverer. I have gotten a man, even the Lord. Now, she understood the promise, and she believed it, but her timing was just a little bit off. And Cain wouldn't prove to be the deliverer that she hoped that he ultimately would. Not long after that, she bears a second child, and she calls his name Abel. Now, the name Abel means vanity, emptiness, or to lead astray. And it's a completely different concept or idea from that of Cain. And so when Eve first saw Abel, either her naming of him was in her mind a reflection of what life had become under the curse, that life is just vain, parenting is vain, everything in this world is vain, there's nothing to it. Or being a mommy, being in this world is not what I thought it would be. It's empty or vanity. Or it's something that she saw in the child himself, that there was something in him 
or in the way that he conducted himself and that she said that there's a vanity or an emptiness or something about him that leads him to be or, or makes him to lead astray. Now we're told the occupation of these two young men. We're told first of all that Cain was a tiller of the soil. He followed in the footsteps of his father. We know that that was the task or the job that God had given to Adam. He said that you will till the ground and cause it to bring forth by the sweat of your brow. And now we see Cain, the firstborn, following carefully in his father's footsteps. The good son, the obedient son, the one who watches his father's steps and then follows in them, the pride of his parents. But then we see Abel, and he's got a completely different occupation. It might have even been seen or observed to be rebellion in his day. He was a keeper of sheep. The first shepherd in the Bible, and the first anything in the Bible other than a tiller of the soil. But he didn't follow in his father's footsteps. And I'm led to believe, as we look at these two boys, that they were of a very different disposition. That Cain was kind of your straight and narrow kind of a guy. Cain was the one that wanted to please his parents. He was the achiever, and Abel, not bad, but just of a different mindset. Someone who went a different direction. And maybe even will look down upon by the other parts of his family, as we'll see between him or in his interaction uh, with Cain. And so we see these two boys, and we see their lifestyle and the way that they're driven right from the very beginning. Well, then we come to their worship in verse 3. It says that in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain, the firstborn, brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought him of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth. Anger filled Cain. And his countenance fell. An expression in the Bible that uh, indicates depression. He falls into anger and depression and because of it. We're told that these boys grow up and it says that in the process of time, each man, each male, brought an offering unto the Lord. The phrase process of time indicates that there's some life experience that's behind these boys now. They've been educated. They're established in their personality and in their occupation. Time has gone by and and they've had the ability now to kind of figure out life and figure out their way and their course. And in this process of time now, it comes into their mind that there is truth and that there is a God And it comes into their mind that they want to approach this God and they want to understand the terms of relationship with him. And so in this process of time now, they come to God and they bring to God their offering. Parents, just a word of exhortation to you is you, like me, raise young ones and watch them grow and figure things out. That with God, there is always a process of time in drawing a person to himself. There is something that has to happen in a life where they become established in themselves, become established in their understanding of the way the world works, be able to interact in it and with it according to the gifts and the personality that they uniquely have. And in the process of time, they, like everyone else on the planet, will begin to question things concerning truth. 
and things concerning God and things concerning eternity. And God has wired that into every human being that exists to seek out and to search after these basic things. Where do I come from? What is my purpose and the purpose of life? What happens when I die and where will I go then? Those are questions that hit every single person. And we as parents sometimes have to back off enough to let the Spirit of God work those questions into our kids' lives that they might then be able to approach God and to figure out the terms of their relationship with him. Not that those terms will be different than the terms that he set up for everyone, but we've got to give them room and not push them away in our pressure trying to speed up the process of God's time. Listen, parents, our God loves our kids more than we do. And he's more concerned about their eternal salvation and where they end up than we are. And we must give him place to work in them as he sees fit. And so these young men now, on their own, without coercion from their parents, they each make their offering to the Lord. Cain, from the first fruits of his harvest and of his crop, for he is an agricultural farmer, he is a gardener. And I'm certain that his offering was brought with great sincerity. I'm certain that it was very sacrificial and that he brought the very best of what he had to offer. I believe it was a costly offering. I believe that it was excellent and it was beautiful. It was the best of what he had and what he could give in, in, in the whole thing. That it, and it was done in his mind with obedience. He was called to be a tiller of the soil. That was what God said to his father. And that's what he is now doing. And so he is bringing the fruit of his labor that God has called him to. And he brings it to God as an offering. We're also told that Abel brought. And Abel brought from the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And I'm sure that his offering was also sincere. And we know that it was sacrificial. He brought the first and he brought the best. The difference would be that to the casual observer, it would seem that his offering was much less costly than Cain's offering. I mean, Cain's really took sweat and toil. Cain really had to make the earth produce and clear away the thorns and fight back the resistance and, and keep back the invasion of pests and disease and all these things. I mean, it was hard for Cain to prepare his offering. Abel, all he had to do is put a male sheep with a female sheep, let them do their thing, then go through the flock at a certain time, find the very best, and just bring it to God as an offering. It seemed almost cheap. What Abel brought, when you compare it with the toil and the sweat that went into Cain's offering. However, when we see God's response to the offering of the two boys, we see that Cain's offering was rejected, and Cain himself was rejected. Notice that. It says that God had not respect unto Cain, nor his offering. But that Abel's offering of the lamb, not only did God have respect to Abel, he accepted his person, but he also accepted his offering. He had respect unto Abel and unto his offering. That's a remarkable thing to consider, that God accepted the one and he rejected the other. Concerning the person of Abel, God saw the heart in which Abel was bringing the offering that he brought, and God accepted him. The New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, tells us why. Why did God accept Abel's person? 
Because it says in Hebrews 11.4 that it was by faith that Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. In other words, Abel's offering was accepted and his person was accepted because it was brought to God on terms of faith. He knew that he didn't produce as Cain had produced. Perhaps he knew that he couldn't produce in the way that Cain had produced because he wasn't wired that way. It wasn't in him to do that. But by faith, he brought what he knew to be the very best thing that he could bring Because that was what his father and mother had communicated, that that's what God did in covering them with coats of skins when they sinned in the garden. God took a lamb. He slayed it. We watched the blood of an innocent substitute pour out upon the ground. He took the skins of that lamb and he clothed us with those skins, much like the clothes that you're wearing right now. His presence was there as we watched our sin being judged upon something else. And by simple faith... Not according to his sweat or his works, he offered to God, according to the prescription that God had required, he brought a lamb for an offering. And by faith, through the shedding of blood, both Abel and his offering were accepted. Now, the New Testament also tells us something about what was going on in the heart of Cain when he brought his sacrifice and his offering. In 1 John chapter 3 Verse 12, John writes, and he says concerning Cain, he says that we should love one another, not like Cain, who was of the wicked one and who killed his brother. I know that's a little bit of a spoiler because we haven't gotten there in the text yet. And why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you, for we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so in that small passage, what we gain are the three things that motivated Cain's offering. Number one, is that his works were evil. His conscience was bothering him because of the things that he was giving himself to in his life, and he wanted to do something to appease his conscience. And so he wasn't bringing an offering to God out of repentance for his sins, but rather out of an attitude of appeasement because he wanted his conscience to quiet down. He had no intention of all of turning from his ways. And God could see through the offering and see that was the position and the attitude of his heart. We're also told by John in the New Testament that he was motivated by competition and jealousy. That his works were evil, but his brothers were righteous. That when he compared himself with his brother, he wanted to one-up his brother in terms of what he was bringing to God. He was motivated by competition. He wanted to be favored further by God than his brother was. So he was motivated by jealousy, by envy, by competition, And then number three, we're told by John, is that he was motivated by hatred. There was a hatred in his heart towards his brother. Now, why? We don't know. But what we do know is that his offering was rejected by God. God saw the heart. God saw the man. He saw that the offering was not offered in faith, nor was it according to the prescription that God had ordained that it be blood that's brought to him. And thus the offering is now rejected 
And Cain himself also is. Now, I wonder, as I read this and I look at it, and I say, well, how in the world did God manifest his acceptance of Abel and his rejection of Cain? Because I, I have to believe that their relationship with God was very much like ours. They lived in a fallen world, just like we do. And we are of the same flesh now that they are. So it's not like God showed up on the scene, shook their hands, and said, okay, here I am. You're good. You're not good. Try to get that way. You know, but you, oh, well, let's go eat, you know, kind of a thing. How did it happen? Did he answer by fire like he did in the days of Elijah? Was there just a blessing that was put upon Abel, upon his substance, in his disposition, in his person? Was there a joy and a freedom in his life that, that Cain himself didn't experience? Or you know, was there a cursing upon his, his uh, work? And his, I don't know what it is, but these are the things that I think about in the whole thing. But somehow it became clear to these two men that one of them was accepted and the other one was rejected. And the response of Cain due to the rejection of God is that he became very wroth, seething with anger and hatred towards his brother, and he became depressed. He sank into a depression. His reaction should have been for him an indication of the fact that he was not right in the circumstance. God has ordained that the reactions that stir up in our flesh to the things that happen be an indication to us of the position that we are in spiritually, whether it be right or wrong. Oftentimes, we want to blame circumstances for the reactions that we have to them. Well, I'm angry because you did this. Or I'm frustrated and bitter because this happened at some point in my life. And we, we immediately want to blame circumstances for the reactions that we have. But that's not the way it works. Our reactions to things that happen to us don't reveal the badness of a circumstance. They reveal the carnal, fleshly, fallen nature that's in me. The problem is me, not the circumstance. Every time, hands down. Just this past Monday morning, Monday is my day off. And I pack my Monday from margin to margin with a flawless plan to use every single minute. And so I did that this past Monday. It starts way before the sun rises and it goes all the way through until the end. And it was going to be perfect. It was just one thing was going to flow into the next and to the next. And I had just like 10 things that were going to all fold together and it was going to be another productive Monday because oftentimes they work out just like that. But what I didn't plan for on this particular Monday is that in order for all of the plans to fall in a row, the car would first have to successfully start in the morning. And so there was a great big kink in my plans from the very beginning when I went out and the car wouldn't start in the way it was. And, and the whole day hung upon the ignition catching when I turned the key that day. And so the whole thing was thrown off. But here's what happened is that when I exhausted the battery of the car in hoping that maybe it's going to miraculously start to work, I felt an anger, a little bit of real human anger, begin to arise that kind of makes you just want to go, Yah! you know, like that. You know, not break anything, but just the beginnings of it. And as soon as I felt that, there was a check. The check engine light in me went on. And I thought, okay, something's wrong here. And here's the thing that immediately came into my mind, because I've been down this road before, is that I made a whole day's worth of plans, and I started the day the right way, in the Word, the, you know, with the Lord, the way I'm supposed to. 
But at no point in all of that and in all of my planning did I say, Lord, here is my day. And I put it before you to do what you will with it. And this is what I'd like to see happen. But Lord, I yield to you what you want. Never happened on this particular Monday. And so this time I think I got it right. I bent the knee right there where I was and I said, Lord, I'm sorry. I recognize right now exactly what's happening is I have made a whole day's worth of plans and I did not counsel with you as to what your will is for this day. And I repent, Lord, for doing that right now. And I thank you that you did not prosper my plans that were made without prayer. Because if you had, then tomorrow I would have done the same thing. What's the point of sharing that with you tonight? Is that the reaction in my flesh to the frustration of my plans, revealed a flaw in me. It wasn't the car's fault that didn't start. It wasn't God's fault that he didn't bless my plans. It was my fault that I hadn't set things in their proper priority and in their proper way. And so God ordains that the reactions that rise up in us be to us an indication of the things that need to be laid before him. Things that need to be repented of. Things that need to change in me. Attitudes, mindsets, habits, personal traits. And right now, Cain has the perfect opportunity to realize something's wrong, make an adjustment, and make it right. Anger, hatred, bitterness, frustration, depression. And what does he do with it? He buries it in bitterness. Now, God is good. Notice God's attempt at restoration as we move on into verse 6. It says that the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you wroth, and why is your countenance fallen? For if you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not well, then sin lies at the door, and unto you shall be his desire, and you shall rule over him. God's response to Cain's anger and depression now is that he gives him two questions and a warning. The two questions, why are you angry? Why are you depressed? And then the warning, if you do well, will you not also be accepted? But if you do not well, then understand that sin is going to take you into a greater course of destruction. But that's not necessary because you should rule over it. His desire is going to be to rule over you, but you should rule over it. It is the way of God when we are not in a right place or when a person is not in a right place, whether they know the Lord or they don't know the Lord, to bring them under conviction. And the way that he does that is he makes a person aware of their condition. And so God comes to Cain and he asks him questions in order to make him aware of his condition. He just says to him, he says, why are you angry? And why are you depressed? Why are these things real in your life right now? Now you say, in what way did God make these questions known to Cain? I believe he made them known to Cain the same way God speaks to us. I believe it came in the fashion of the still small voice, which sounds a whole lot like our own thoughts, doesn't it? What is a thought? A thought is an inaudible voice, isn't it? That's what a thought is. And those inaudible voices and thoughts can come from different places. Sometimes those thoughts can come from God. It can be the, be the very whisper of God whispering to us through the voice of our own thoughts speaking to us. And so sometimes we'll ask us, why am I depressed? Why am I angry? It could be God asking you the question, bringing to mind. Sometimes thoughts come from our flesh, the fallen nature that's within us. That person is so, that's the flesh. You can recognize that right away. 
Sometimes thoughts come from the world, the suggestion of advertising or obtaining or covetousness. And thoughts can come to us, and they can be just worldly thoughts, just things floating around in this, hey, I would love a Lexus. That's probably the world, right? Thoughts can come from all over the place. But sometimes thoughts come from the Lord. And I believe that God, just working in Cain right now, why am I angry? Why am I depressed? Seeking to bring forth from Cain a realization of his condition so that he can then make the adjustment. I believe that the rejection of Cain's offering is of no fault of his own in and of itself. I mean, think about it. There was no churches in those days. There was no pastors. He didn't have a Bible. There was no priest that he could go to and say, hey, what what went wrong in this thing? How did they figure this out? It was trial and error, right? And this is the same thing with us and our kids. Our kids do things, and we say, no, 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 no. (laughs) Why don't you go back and try that again? You know, my son Noah, four years old, he comes up, he slams a glass on the table. I've got a fresh open can of cold seltzer. Slams the glass. No, 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 try that again. Seltzer. No, 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 no. Try that again. You know, try seltzer, please. You know, you may have a sip. This is gold, you know. <laughs> you know, but, but we do that all the time with our kids. They try, we say no, and we show them what's the right way. And that's what God's trying to do with Cain right here. He's trying to help him make the adjustment and get things right. If you do what's right, will you not also be accepted? Now, what's amazing to me here in all of this... Uh, work of God to try to bring Cain around, Cain completely ignores God. He does not answer him at all, one bit in the whole thing, and he just um, just blows it off. It's nothing. He won't, won't admit to it, nothing. He just does nothing. But sin, once we allow it into us, does not lie stagnant, nor does it keep us where we are. Sin always is binding progressive and destructive every time you cannot sit stagnant in sin and think that it's just going to stay the same if you ignore sin sin will bring you on a course that ultimately ends somewhere now Cain's sin in all of this is hatred and anger he's mad at God and he's mad at his brother because of this whole thing Jesus tells us where anger and wrath brings us to when it's full grown what did he say He said, you have heard that it is written, you shall not kill. But I say unto you that if you are angry at your brother, then you have already murdered him in your heart. You've committed the sin of murder. Why did Jesus say that? Because murder is the fruit whose root is anger and bitterness. It starts with anger. You can't kill someone, murder someone, unless you're first angry with them. The sin of anger progresses to murder. Jesus said, likewise, you've heard that it's written, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you look at a man or a woman with lust in your heart, that you've already committed adultery with that person. How can you say that, Jesus? Because the root of adultery is lust. And thus, if lust goes unchecked in the heart, it's only a matter of time before the action of adultery or fornication is worked out in the life. And so sin is always progressive. It takes us somewhere that we don't want to go. And God is seeking to bring Cain to repentance that he doesn't end up in that place. But Cain ignores the knock of the still small voice and the gentle whisper of God. He refuses to get right and to master over sin, and thus sin masters over him. Notice in verse 8. 
It says that Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. So anger progressed into murder, and Cain now kills Abel because of his anger, his jealousy, his bitterness with God and with his brother. And now the Lord comes to Cain the second time in things, and he seeks to still restore him. Isn't it amazing, the grace of God? That no matter how far down a road of sin will go, or a man or a woman will go, that as long as that person has a pulse and a heartbeat, God will seek to bring that person back and bring them to repentance. And so God does the same thing again. He confronts Cain with a question seeking to draw out repentance. Verse 9. It says that the Lord said now unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? Now at this point, the voice of God becomes very easy to discern, right? Because he knows this isn't from himself. He knows exactly where Abel, his brother, is. So this is not self bringing a thought to him. It's not the world. It's not the devil. This is God. And God is speaking to Cain very clearly. And he says, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain replies, and he said to God, I know not. That's a lie. And then he asks a question with a jab. He says, am I my brother's keeper? It's a play on words. Remember what it said, Abel? It says that he was a keeper of sheep. A keeper means shepherd. And so basically what Cain is saying now is he looks at God snidely and sarcastically. And he says, you wouldn't receive my offering and I was of no value to you. And he says, what am I, my brother's shepherd? Are you asking me to be a shepherd now? You want a lamb and now you want me to watch my brother? He's being snide. He's being sarcastic with God. I mean, think about just the amazement of someone to be so bold and so brash and to just insult God to his face in the way that Cain is. Well, it's the final straw with God and Cain. And God says to him in verse 10, Cain not responding to the conviction. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. Think about, think about the grace of God. I mean, how much grace have you and I received in our life? And how gracious do we know God to be? And to think that now Cain has exhausted the supply of God's grace and he has ratified the position of his own heart in rebellion against God and God agrees with it. Woe unto the person that hardens their heart against God and then God agrees and says, so be it. That's the way you want it. That's the way it will be. Our God is so incredibly patient, isn't he? You heard the story about the debate that took place between the atheist and the Christian. And they were talking about origins and, and God. And the, the atheist looked at the audience and he said, I can prove to you beyond any shadow of a doubt that there absolutely is no God. And he said, and here's how. He said, if there's a God, then I yield the rest of my five minutes right now for him to come and smite me dead right here on this platform. And then with that, he went silent. And there was an awkward, eerie silence for the remainder of that five minutes while that atheist stood there, snidely looking at the crowd in perfect health. And as his time came to, and he stood there perfect, perfectly whole, he looked at the crowd and he said, See, what God challenged like that wouldn't come through on his answer. There is no God. I yield my time. Well, the Christian looked over at him with a big smile on his face. 
And he said, no God? You think that that proves that there is no God? That doesn't prove that there is no God. All you just proved is that even the worst sinner can't exhaust the patience of God in five minutes. (laughs) But Cain exhausted the patience of God. Be careful when you harden yourself in a position of sin against God. Because God is very gracious and he will give you multiple opportunities to repent. But there will come a time where God will look at the life that hardens itself against his grace and the offering of his forgiveness. And he will say, if that's the way you want it, then so be it. We read of Pharaoh in Egypt when Moses came to him that seven times Moses came to Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord. And seven times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He resisted the word of God. But then seven more times Moses came to Pharaoh and said, Thus saith the Lord. And those seven times after that, it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. God gave Pharaoh seven chances, gave him the choice. But when Pharaoh persisted in rebellion, God eventually ratified the decision that he made and then God crystallized his position. And there was no turning from there. And now Cain finds himself in like manner in a place where he has hardened himself against God. This is all stupid pride. That's all it is. It's stupid pride. Pride is the most dangerous and damnable sin because it is so unnecessary, so stupid. What Cain is doing in his mind and in his heart is he's saying, God, if I capitulate and if I bring you a lamb then that's going to make Abel the spiritual leader of our house. It will mean that I'm following his example of how it is to worship. And you know what, God? I would rather burn in hell than capitulate to that and to concede that Abel was right and I'm wrong. So you can have your way. Oh, and God, by the way, if my best, the offering of my achieving, is not enough to bring me favor with you, then I don't want favor with you not realizing that no one in anything that they can bring to God can ever be accepted by the works of their hands. Do you know what Cain forgot in all of this? He forgot his last name. Do you know what his last name is? Sinner. You know what Abel's last name is? Sinner. Do you know what your last name is and mine? Sinner. You know what that means? It means that my first name can be good, My first name can be achieving. My first name could be wealthy. My first name could be bad, sinister, hateful. But my last name is still sinner. So when I put it together, my name could be good sinner, wealthy sinner, generous sinner, benevolent sinner, bad sinner, crafty sinner. But at the end of the day, unless there's a name change... In my family name, I'm still just a sinner. And Cain was a good sinner. He followed his family's footsteps. He did everything right. He was obedient. He was a tiller of the soil. He was the productive one. He was the promised one. This is the Messiah, his mother would say. But he offered to God the works of his own hands. And he wasn't willing to admit that someone else, maybe a little more inferior in the intelligence spectrum... Someone may be a little bit more disobedient in the political spectrum. He couldn't bring himself to admit that maybe they're right 
about what they're preaching about this God and about the way in which we approach him. If I capitulate to that, then I become like that, and I'm not going to become like that. And God, if my best isn't enough to gain and earn your acceptance, then who needs it anyways? I'd rather burn in hell, but I'll die in my dignity. You know what that's called? Stupid pride. And you might be here tonight, and somewhere underneath all of the facade of what you call atheism or skepticism, in all reality, you're looking at the person sitting next to you, or the person who's been sharing Christ with you, and you've been saying, I can't bring myself to admit that you might be right. And I'm willing to die in my sins rather than to come down onto what I consider come down to your level. Pride. Stupid pride. You know why it's so stupid? Because you gain the least by keeping what you're trying to hold on to. You gain nothing. Oh, I have the upper hand. I have my dignity. I have the feeling that I'm right. And I have the you know, popular opinion support of everyone else in all of this. Oh, that's great. Enjoy that for all of eternity. Thank God there is a way that he has made whereby we may approach him. And that is with a repentant, grateful heart and an offering of the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that we, when we approach God, we bring to him even less than what Abel brought? Because we don't even bring our own lamb. We bring the lamb that God provided, Jesus Christ. And we say, God, nothing of myself I bring simply to your cross I cling. It's Jesus and him alone. God, he is my plea and I bring him and his blood before you. That's all I've got. And God looks at our life and he says, accept it. And then, out of gratitude to God for what he's already done, I bring him the fruit of my works. Maybe I'm a tiller of soil. Maybe I'm an investment broker or banker. Maybe I'm a nurse or a doctor. And I do what I do to the glory of God, and I bring an offering of that to God, not trying to gain acceptance, but just out of gratitude for what he's done. And you know what? God accepts that offering. It's the works of our hands bringing glory to his name, not because I'm gaining his favor, but because I've already received it and I'm responding to it. Cain was so far from that. And in his pride, he snidely mocks God, And God says, here's the consequence now. You are cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. For now, when you till the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto you her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall you be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Here's the irony of the whole situation. Is that Cain chose gardening over God, and now the consequence of it, is that Cain no longer will even enjoy the thing that he once found delight and satisfaction in. Isn't it true that when we put something in our lives before God and we make it higher than him, that somehow even the thing that we once enjoyed becomes unenjoyable and no longer yields to us its pleasure or its strength? God is not seeking to take things away from us. Do we understand that? What God wants to do in our lives is he wants to complete what he's made us to do. He's given us the things and the desires of our heart. And he wants to complete those things and glorify those things, but never outside of a relationship with him where he is first. And if we put anything before him, it's only a matter of time before those things become the burden of our life and not the blessing of our life. From now on, Cain, the ground is not going to yield its strength to you. And not only that, but from now on, a fugitive and a vagabond you will be. A fugitive and a vagabond 
two completely different Hebrew words that mean the exact same thing. It means wanderer. In other words, God's saying you're going to be a wanderer and a wanderer. Two different words mean the same. You're going to go up and down. You're going to go back and forth. You're going to go from this thing to that thing, from this place to that place. You're going to seek satisfaction in everything that there is under the sun, and you are never going to find it. When a person rejects the thing that they were made for, to be in a relationship with God, they've got to fill that void with something. And so a person who rejects God will go from this to that to the other, seeking satisfaction, and they will wander their existence away, never finding the purpose for which they've been made. We were made to know him and enjoy him forever. That's where life is. It's in him. Notice Cain's response. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me out this day from the face of the earth And from thy face I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that finds me shall slay me. Did you catch that? My, I, I, me, I, me, me. Seven times. No concern for Abel. No concern for his parents and the damage that he's caused them. No concern for God and the offense that it is that he has slain Abel, who was favored by God and loved by God. It's all about Cain. He is enclosed in the prison of self. And so the Lord says, okay, you want self? I'll give you self for your whole life. And so the Lord said unto him, therefore, whosoever slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. The ground will no longer yield. You will wander and you will not die in peace in this life. And so then it says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and he dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And then the rest of the chapter, you can uh, read it on your own, follows the descendants of Cain in the the, the, uh, things that they were involved in um, as they came into the world. And then in verse 25, it says that Adam knew his wife again and she bare a son and she called his name Seth for God said, she has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, Seth Uh, means appointed, or appointed, yeah, that's, you get it, whom Cain slew, and to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enosh, and then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And so the chapter ends in giving to us a division between two types of human beings that are now occupying the planet. There are the descendants of Cain that are the one in whom God has no influence at all, and they are not influenced by God. And then there is the line of Seth, this next son of Adam and Eve, and his descendants are among those that call now upon the name of the Lord. So you have the godless, and you have the godly, and you have the beginning of these two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world, and then the kingdom of God on earth uh, represented in the people of God. We're going to move into and through chapter 5 extremely quickly because it's just one big long genealogy. But before we do, just one final Closing uh, point on chapter 4 that I hope that uh, each of us can understand tonight and, and maybe be encouraged by. Understand this. Is that the destiny of a child is not the fault nor the reflection of the parents. Cain had absolute perfect parents. I mean, at least as perfect as fallen parents can be. He was also in an environment where there was absolutely no negative or ungodly influence at all. There was no internet, there was no bad crowd or bad posse. 
There was no MTV or cable television or any movies that could corrupt his personality or be a bad influence in his life. Cain made a decision according to the dictates of what was in his flesh. And that's the same decision that every single person has. And so sometimes the going astray of our kids is not the fault of bad parenting or even of bad influence. It's in every one of us to rebel against God. But thankfully, we have a God that's strong enough to bring us back from that rebellion. Does that mean that we should give in and say, well, I don't have to teach my kids the ways of the Lord. It's up to him and up to them. No, 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 no. We have a job, parents, to sow into their lives spiritual things, to pray for them, to pull them along as best we can, to hold out hope and to speak life into them and into their lives, and to share with them the gospel of Christ as much as we can. But it's God, ultimately, that works in them, and it's their decision that they're going to make, whether or not they're going to follow him on things. And and understand that where your child is today means nothing in terms of where they'll end up in the future. I get the sense that Adam and Eve had little hope for Abel, and that he was the one that was righteous. And you might be in a place today where you say, man, I don't know about my kids. Don't worry. God's working in their life. Keep praying. He's got his hand upon you, upon them. He loves them more than we do. Chapter 5 covers a period of 1,556 years. One chapter covers a whole lot of ground in the history of God. And what the chapter is, is a genealogy that brings us from Adam all the way till Noah. And what we're told in the chapter is that Adam, whose name means man, was 130 when he had Seth, whose name means appointed. And he was 105 when he had Enos, whose name means mortal. You can see where this is going with the human race, right? Because they're realizing that they're fallen and destined to walk in the fall. And he was 90 when he gave birth to Canaan, whose name means sorrow, who was 70 when he gave birth to Mahalayel, whose name means the blessed God. And he was 65 when he gave birth to Yared, or Jared, if you want to be real English and Anglo-Saxon about it. You know. And his name means to descend or to come down. He was 162 when he gave birth to Enoch, whose name means to teach or to train up, who was 65 when he gave birth to Methuselah, whose name means his death shall bring it a prophecy concerning the flood that will come in Noah's day. And interestingly, Methuselah died in the year of the flood. It came to pass even as his name implied. His name means his death shall bring it. He was 187 when he gave birth to Lamech, whose name means eternal, who was then 182 when he gave birth to Noah, whose name means comfort or rest. And so the chapter is one long genealogy that brings us from Adam all the way down to Noah. There's one interesting character that's worthy of of looking at in verse 21. Notice in chapter 5, verse 21. It says that Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God a hundred years, or I'm sorry, after he begat Methuselah for 300 years, And he begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, why is that interesting? Because Enoch is one of only two people in the entire 
Old Testament that did not die. Everyone else left the world by passing, by dying. But Enoch, and the other one is Elijah, did not die. They were translated or taken by God. And the reason that's significant is twofold. Number one is because what marked his life? What was it about Enoch that pleased God? The New Testament tells us that Enoch pleased God. It's that he simply walked with him. He wasn't anything special. He wasn't gifted. He wasn't fruitful in any special capacity. He simply walked with God, and he pleased God because of it. What does it mean to walk with someone? Companionship, fellowship, intimacy, relationship. That's what pleases God when we walk with him, when he's a part of our life every day. The other reason it's significant is because Enoch becomes a prefiguring picture of those that will be raptured in the last days. He's a picture of a believer, someone who walks with God, who's taken by God prior to impending judgment. And that's exactly what the rapture of the church will be. Though there have only been two thus far that have gone to heaven without dying, there will be an innumerable amount more when the rapture takes place. Jesus said it this way in John chapter uh, I didn't put a post-it there. It's in John, it should come up. I think it's John chapter 11. Verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you see that in verse 26? He that lives up until the time that Jesus returns will never die. That person will be taken. The rapture of the church is talking about in the New Testament. And Enoch is a prefiguring of that, that blessed hope that we await. And so an interesting character who walked with God uh, there in the earliest days of humanity, even before the flood. As we close tonight, I think of, and the musicians can come, we're, we're, we're wrapping up here. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, he said, you search the scriptures, and in them you think that you have life. He said, but they are they which testify of me. The Bible also says concerning Jesus that in the volume of the book, it is written of him. Jesus would say to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that all of the Old Testament scriptures speak of him. You say, well, we just looked at a chapter that is genealogy from end to end from Adam to Noah. You say, what in the world could that point to or speak to the person of Jesus? How does it point to and reflect Jesus in any way? Interesting thing, if you take the names that are listed in this genealogy and you take the meaning of those names and you put them together successively and you read it as a sentence, listen to what it says. A man appointed, mortal, a man of sorrows. The blessed God shall descend, shall come down to teach, to train up. His death shall bring it the eternal rest. I don't know that there's a phrase on earth that could more describe the person, work, and ministry of Jesus Christ 
than to put those words together. And it's the story that God strung through the first of those that called upon the Lord and humanity in the earliest days. A man, appointed mortal, a man of sorrows, the blessed God shall come down to teach, to train up, and his death shall bring it, the eternal rest. Father, we just thank you tonight for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is here now. We thank you for your gospel, for your person, your presence, and your peace. We thank you for the tremendous work that you're doing and have done in our lives. We thank you that you reasoned with each one of us, bringing us under conviction into a place where we would receive and accept your son. And we thank you for what he means to us and that you were willing to send him into this world, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, to take our sin and our shame upon the cross. And we thank you for the eternity that awaits us in his name. And we thank you for your love for each one of us. Take these words, O Lord. Work them in us. Help us to learn, to grow, and to change. That we wouldn't resist in stubborn pride, but that we'd surrender according to your grace. Help us, Lord, to understand. You know, Cain was a believer. Cain believed full well in God. And yet Cain was not saved. He had conversation. He had relationship with God. What Cain wasn't is that he wasn't a receiver. Jesus said in John chapter 1, verse 12, he said, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to be called the sons of God. It isn't enough to just say, I believe. But is your heart in a place where you'll say, God, I'm a sinner. My last name is Sinner. And I need to repent before you. And I need you to be the Lord of my life and to save me from the sins I can't save myself from. And as humiliating as it is to watch the Lamb of God bleed out and die for me and for my sins, oh God, if you don't, then I know that I have no hope. And there may may be some canes here tonight. Those that have never received Christ because of pride, stubbornness, resistance, rebellion, hatred, anger, jealousy, you name it. We're filled with all of it. All of us are. God said through the prophet Isaiah, he said, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. If you be willing, that's it. Are you willing? Sometimes you can be a Cain even though you're saved. You can resist and say, God, I'm not giving this up. I love it too much. I love you, Lord, but I love this. You're going to lose it. It's only a matter of time. Listen, there's nothing, there's nothing more valuable than him. And I encourage you tonight, wherever you're at on that spectrum, give yourself completely to God. It's so worth it. He's so worth it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.